are going through the book of Luke, where Luke has been showing us Jesus. Jesus. As we heard the news of his virgin birth from the angel Gabriel, as we heard God the Father with a booming voice declare, this is my beloved son. And as we saw how he faced the same kind of temptations we do in spiritual battles with the same real enemy we have in the wilderness. But today, you are going to hear the first sermon Luke chose to record where Jesus confronts us with his own claims as to who he is and what he came to do. Turn to Luke chapter four, Luke chapter four and follow along beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit. He's talking about return from the wilderness with the battles he faced with Satan. Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And when he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph? Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do it here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed. But only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. So that they could throw him down. Down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. 
So what can we learn about Jesus? And what can we learn about us from this passage? Here's the first thing that you can settle once and for all. Number one, Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew who he was. Oh, Hollywood loves to depict him as some kind of deranged guru who wasn't sure who he was and why, why he came. But you don't see that from the scriptures and you don't hear that coming from his mouth ever, ever. In fact, in this first sermon, he makes it clear who he is and what he's come to do. And he does it by using scripture and saying, I am the fulfillment of that scripture. He applies it to himself and says, that's me. It's talking about me, talking about me, talking about me. Look at it again in verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You see, here's what's going on. This follows a pattern of worship that was common in the synagogue. This was an order of worship. Whenever they met, there was a point at which a guest was invited to read from one of the prophets. So this was not exceptional. Like, why did they let him do that? That's what they always did. A guest was invited to read from one of the prophets. Now, they'd already chosen what it would be. Isaiah. He's invited to be the reader. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And he unrolls it. Now, you got to picture this. Not a Bible, a scroll. And he unrolls it all the way down to chapter 61. You think it's hard to find things in your Bible? Imagine. There's only 66 chapters in Isaiah. He, and, and this had to be a pregnant moment of, wow, this took a while. And deliberately chooses two verses that predict the coming of the Messiah and what he will do. And as he reads these two verses, he then sits down, not because he's done, but because in the synagogue, you would read scripture standing and you would sit down to preach your sermon, which is why verse 20 says, and the eyes of every single person were fixed on him as he opened his mouth and delivered one of the shortest sermons ever. Look at it again in verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says, I am the sermon which answered two questions they'd always been wondering about. Whenever they read this passage, whenever these verses were read, they were always wondering, who is Isaiah talking about? 
And when is it going to happen? Who's Isaiah talking about when it's going to happen? Jesus says he's talking about me and it's happening now. Mic drop. It's talking about me and it's happening now. Now. Me and now. Oh, Jesus had no doubt who he was and what he'd come to do. And so this bold statement caused them to say next, right? Isn't this Joseph's son? We watched him work in the carpenter shop with his dad. We've seen wood chips all over him. We watched him run through town. We knew him as a little boy. He's a hometown boy. We love what he's saying about freedom and deliverance from oppression. But he can't be anything other than a man, maybe a good man, maybe a wonderful teacher. We know him. Oh, listen to me. It's the same thing that keeps happening today, you guys. I hope you do realize very few people doubt whether Jesus existed and very few people actually totally hate Jesus. Most people love some of what Jesus says and does until he starts claiming to be God. Oh, be a good man. Be a great teacher. Feed the hungry. Start a revolution. Just don't claim to be God. You can't do that. Don't claim to be God. But I hope you realize Jesus never gives us the option of reducing him down to a good man, a social justice warrior, a wise sage, or some other kind of cultural icon that you can just add to your favorite collection of earthly heroes that you say, they inspire me. They're a good example. I needed that. They inspire me. They're a good example. He claimed to be God, which is why the Jews wanted to kill him and the Romans were happy to help them. U2's famous frontman Bono. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but I do know this. He brings up Jesus a lot. He brings up Christianity a lot. He reads his Bible. Not here to tell you where he is between the God of the universe and where his soul truly is. But this man brings up Jesus a lot. And seems to be reading his Bible to decide what he thinks about Jesus. So in an interview where he was being interviewed, he brought up Jesus and Christianity. And the interviewer pushed back and said, oh, I can accept Jesus as a great thinker. But it's far-fetched to believe he was the son of God. And when the interviewer said that, here's what Bono said. And I quote, the secular response to Christ always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot of great things to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually Christ doesn't allow you to do that. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm the Messiah. I am God incarnate. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these Roman creeps. But actually, I am the Messiah. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe 
could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase. That's far-fetched to me. Way to go, Bono. Bono has been reading the claims of Jesus Christ himself instead of what the culture says or some professor says. It's common to hear people say Jesus never claimed to be God. That's one of the stupidest statements you could make. It's why the Jews were constantly picking up rocks to try to kill him. They knew what he's saying, and it's time that we acknowledged what he's saying. He's not just a good man. He's either a total wacko nut job, or he is God in flesh. Those are your only two options. Because I hope you realize good is ridiculous to say he was a good man. He was a good man. Good and sane people don't run around claiming to be the fulfillment of any particular scripture. But he did. He claimed to be God. Because he was and is Emmanuel, God with us. Fully God, fully man. Fully God, fully man. Like no other. Jesus knew who he was. But number two, let me show you something else we can learn from this passage. He didn't just know who he was. This also shows how he was God. You see it all through the Gospels. Constantly, you'll see Jesus addressing what they were only thinking. They haven't even spoken out loud. I love that one. We're going to get to it later where he's like, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon was sitting at a, at a dinner judging this woman how much better he was. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. We'll get there in a year. Good stuff. You'll see him... Speaking to people who've only thought something. That would rattle you. Like, I was just thinking that. Yeah, he knows. He's God. Jesus knew how we think. When you read your Bible, you don't just learn about Jesus and God. You learn about you. You, in ways that sometimes are not flattering that you'd prefer not to know. But the Bible informs us of God and the Bible informs us of us. And the Bible informs us of how these two things can be reconciled. Who is God? Who are we? And what's the only hope for us? There's a summary of the Bible for you. Jesus knew how we think. Look at the response to his message in verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Wait a minute. What is going on? He just claimed to be the Messiah. But they're not offended, upset, or shocked at all. Why? Because they thought the Messiah was going to fix their immediate problem. Immediate. And solve the political oppression they were living under with Rome. And so they're like, we don't care who gets it done as long as it gets done. A nutcase can do it for all we care. If you're saying you're going to do those two verses, what it's saying there, we're your biggest fans. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. They're marveling at the gracious words. Oh, my goodness. See, here's what's going on. When they heard words like liberty, captive, oppression, they're thinking about he is going to do what we've been wanting to happen. We've been living under the thumb of an unjust government that needs to be overthrown, and he's here to do it. Set the captives free. Crush the oppressors. Yay, bring it.
But Jesus was talking about setting captives free from the oppression of slavery to sin and Satan. That is a much bigger and eternal problem that would land us all in hell. He came to solve our biggest problem. That is not a temporary political or government or health or economic problem. He left all that alone, left it alone. He came into this world to do something far more important. Set captives free from sin and Satan, which is why he launches into sermon number two. You realize, aren't you glad I never do that? I was like, I can tell you didn't get it the first time. Nobody's leaving. I got another one in my pocket. Here we go. You stay till I realize you get what I'm saying. Well, his first one was so short. There was time left. Nursery workers weren't saying, oh, you got to stop. You got to stop. He had time for sermon number two. And it was necessary. He launches into a second sermon and starts to talk about Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. In a way that blew that worship service up. And started a riot that drove him out of town and up onto a hill where they wanted to kill him. What is going on? That's so big difference from the way they responded to short sermon number one. What is going on? Well, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's doing what he so often does that you'll see all through the gospels. He's taking his message to the next level because he realizes that they have done what we still so often do today. You ready? They have sifted his message through a grid of their own interpretation so that it fits with exactly what they're thinking and what they wanted to do. Perfect. You're thinking what we're thinking. You're about to do what we want done. My favorite kind of Messiah. Go for it. He realizes the fact that they did not react to his message means they didn't hear it right. They're thinking something else. And they were out with Rome, out from oppression. Here we go. Fix this. And so it goes into sermon number two. He's like, I got to do something to shake it up and make this clear. Because it's obvious to me, they didn't understand what I just said. And so that's what he's doing in verses 25 to 27. He's shaking it up as he starts to talk about, we struggle to appreciate this, but oh my goodness, what he just said was so offensive to them. He starts to talk about, you guys, a Gentile widow. Zarephath was outside of Israel pagan. They called everyone outside of Israel dogs. He is now talking about a widow who's a dog. She has nothing. If you read the account in first Kings, she has so much of nothing that she's gathering sticks and she's about to prepare her last meal for her and her son to eat and then die. She's a widow who has nothing. And she's a Gentile pagan widow. And then he talks about, oh, oh my, a Gentile soldier. 
These are the people they hated. Who has leprosy? A Gentile widow who has nothing. A Gentile soldier who has leprosy. In in other words, what he was doing, he's saying, not only am I not here to solve your immediate political problem, I'm not even here to save people like you who think you're pretty good. We're in the synagogue. We know the scriptures. We do all the right things. I'm not even here to save people like you. If you want to know who I'm here to save, look at her and look at him. Gentile widow with nothing from Zarephath. Gentile soldier, Syrian with leprosy. These are two people that they had in categories of Outcast, total outcast, were so not like them. He's saying, I came to save people who know that there's absolutely no hope for them apart from me. That's who I came to save. Not the already pretty good, not the I just need a little help. Not the look at how many things I'm already doing right. Just give me a booster shop. No. Helpless, hopeless, helpless, hopeless is who I came to save. And oh, that's when they stopped marveling and stopped thinking his words were so gracious. And verse 28 says, they were filled with wrath. Hey, Nothing's changed. Nothing sets people off than being told they're far worse than they think they are. Don't touch that. I'm willing to say I'm bad, not that bad. We're constantly comparing ourselves to somebody else that gives us a leg up. They were filled with wrath. Rose up. They got out of their seats, rose up. This this is different. At least I just get emails. I haven't had anybody rise up out of their seat and come at me and try to drive me into Gunpowder Creek. And I probably don't have the ability to walk on water and get away like he did. Just emails. They rose up, drove him out of town, up onto a hill to throw him off. Oh my, sermon one, sermon two, all in the same worship service, quite a day. But he touched a nerve. He touched a nerve because he realized the fact that they're not upset with sermon number one shows how they do not get what I just said, who I am and what I'm here to do and who the candidates even are for what I'm here to do. Who is it that I can save Listen to me, when the human heart truly understands the message of the gospel, it is almost always offensive at first. Offensive, 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 because it puts us in a position of abject poverty, the widow, and absolute need, unable to do anything for ourselves, the leper. I don't know if you know this or not. 
We don't like that. We're super uncomfortable with that. We don't like, you mean there's nothing I can do? Really? The, the, the human heart makes a huge distinction between I know I need a little help. Ooh, I get by with a little help from my friends. We're okay with that. I can't do it all. I need some friends. Big difference between I need a little help and helpless. The human heart recoils with repugnant disgust and wrath at helpless and hopeless. But stay with me. Helpless and hopeless is the very starting point for understanding and embracing the gospel. If you're sitting there and saying, but I've never had a thought like that about me, that's not good. It could be. Do you realize, I know the world is dark. I know there's places that it's hard to preach the gospel and and we're all apart spending money to get people there. I believe one of the biggest untapped mission fields in America today is inside the church, not outside. In the church, people who've never snorted cocaine, people who've never been sexually immoral, people who like the people sitting in front of him say, so glad I'm not like, and I don't know who you point to, but it's not that hard to find them today. Oh my goodness, I've been a pastor a long time and I can't tell you how many times in a small group or a smaller setting, I'll hear someone say, here's what it sounds like when you get it. Oh, I've been in church, oh this, oh that, oh that, and then blah, blah, blah. I finally realized, oh, I am a sinner. It's not like that word was new to them, but for the first time it landed in their lap And they embraced it and applied it to themselves like they never had. And new birth took place. I hope you realize new birth can't happen. You can't experience the power of the gospel until you're willing to acknowledge your place. Helpless, hopeless, helpless, hopeless. That's why the human heart is so drawn to religion. Instead of the gospel. Religion's all about let's light some candles. Let's burn some incense. Let's get baptized. Let's check a card. Sign a card. Let's join the church. Let's get in a small group. Let's feed the hungry. Let's be nice. Let's keep the golden rule. But you can do all that. And never see yourself. As God actually sees you. You are no better than anyone else. Here's another tip off. If you regularly find yourself saying or thinking, oh, how could they? And you fill in the blank. That's actually not a good sign. Don't say, well, it's because I'm a God follower and I'm disgusted by sin. No, there's a dangerous thing that could be going on. You think you're better than other people and that you would never do that. The person who's truly born again and has experienced the power of the gospel because they first saw themselves as who they are truly and that they can't do anything. Here's what you say. Oh my goodness. Apart from the grace of God, that could be me. The only reason that's not me is the grace of God. You realize your heart is justice. It's just the grace of God if you haven't played out and done all the things they've done. But your heart is no better. The depth of your sin is equal to theirs. And you say, oh my goodness, I needed a savior, a savior, a savior. I didn't just need help. 
I needed a savior who would come all the way to me because I'm helpless and I'm hopeless. Very different than religion. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And look at how he drives this home to them. He goes out of his way to push this point, you guys. Let me show you how I did it. In verses 25 to 27, look at it again. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three and a half years and a great famine covered all the land. And Elijah, he uses the same wording two times in two verses. And Elijah was sent to none of them. Them being the religious, the respectable, Israel, none. Two words. But only, but only to Zarephath, dogs, outcast, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and exact same wording, and none of them was cleansed. Two words, say it with me, but only. He uses two words two times. To make it absolutely clear, he's not saying, he wanted to make sure they didn't hear the wrong thing. I'm not saying, oh my goodness, I'm so good, I'm so powerful, I can even save someone like this woman, and I can even save someone like this soldier who's a leper. He's saying, I can only save people like that, but only, but only, but only, but only. Why? Well, he has the power to save anything, anyone, no doubt. But he can only save people who see themselves as helpless and hopeless, able to do nothing for themselves, who simply need a savior and would say, oh God, have mercy to me in your son, Jesus. I believe, I believe, save me. But only, but only. What do you have today? Religion? Or are you alive spiritually? Have you experienced the power of the gospel? Have you been born again? Because you did reach a point where you said, I don't just need help. I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. I need a savior. A savior. Have mercy. We're going to get there in a year. And Luke where those two are standing in the temple, remember? One's a Pharisee. He's memorized scripture. He's doing all the right things, just like the crowd that was sitting in front of him who stood there and prayed, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like. And then there was a tax collector despised who said, oh, it says he just beat his breast and wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven and just kept saying, oh God, be merciful to me. What? And Jesus said, this one went home justified, right with God. This one went home full of himself, religious and still on his way to hell. What do you have today? Have you reached a point where you were willing to see yourself in the category of widow, leper, nothing, nothing, no hope, nothing, no hope. You probably would never say it out loud. But if you have thoughts, if you ever wake up thinking, God is lucky to have me in this world and on his team. 
good golly, Miss Molly, what would he, I don't know how he'd do it if it was just all these wretched people. But he does have some people like me. You wouldn't say that out loud in community group. You wouldn't nudge your spouse and say, God's lucky to have me. But it's there. It's just right there. It's there. Not a good sign. And see, this is a game changer also. It doesn't just, this is not how you come into real spiritual life. It's also how you start being compassionate towards other sinners instead of so angry at them and so hateful and disgusted. There's another litmus test. What is your reaction to real sinners that are out there doing real stuff? Disgust, condemnation, or compassion. When you have experienced what I'm talking about and you know who you really are and what you can't do and what God actually did, you are compassionate instead of angry and judgmental. I think the reason we have so many Christians who are more angry than compassionate, don't hear me saying every angry Christian right now can't be born again. But it's worth checking on their salvation. It's worth them. The Bible says, examine yourselves and see if you be in the faith. You just might be into religion, but not born again. Oh, listen, Jesus knew who he was. People love to say, oh, he never claimed to be God. Please stop. Really dumb when you say that. Read your Bible. He knew who he was. He knew how we think. But number three, he knew why he'd come and that he's coming again. He knew why he came and that he's coming again. Look at verse 19. Because not only, here's what you need to understand. In verse 19, not only is this one of the shortest scripture readings ever, what you don't realize in the English is that he broke it off in the middle of a verse. You realize that? So the English translator said, this is weird. It won't make sense. We'll just put a period at the end of verse 19 because that's where he stopped and sat down. Jesus stopped in the middle of a verse. Why? Well, here's what Isaiah 61.2 says. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. Of our God. Now, don't make a mistake. This is not easy believism. God's an angry father and he's a sweet Jesus and he didn't want to talk about wrath. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus understood his mission was a two part drama. Two parts. That he was coming into this world the first time as a savior, offering free gospel, salvation, eternal life. In him, by faith alone. And that that is what he's inaugurating in this moment. The first part one, act one. And so he breaks it off to emphasize the day of the Lord's favor. I am kicking off the day of the Lord's favor. But God's word teaches and he knows it. He's coming back a second time, you guys. And he's coming back as king to judge all who refuse to receive this free offer of the gospel. He's coming back. 
And when he comes back, it's not going to be as savior. It's going to be as judge and king, judge and king. And so get this. If you found yourself thinking in this last year, and even as we head into 2021, oh my goodness, when's God going to do something about all this? Does God see all the wickedness, the darkness, the injustice on and on and on? What? Oh, hear me. Hear me. Yes, God sees it. And he's going to do something about it. But I hope you realize when he does, when he comes back to make all things right, millions of people are going to be sent to hell. A Christless eternity. And so it is, don't keep saying, man, God must not be very loving. He's not doing anything about this. He delays his judgment so that more may come to faith in Christ. It doesn't matter how dark it is, how broken it is. This is the day of the Lord's favor. It's the day of the Lord's favor. Favor, favor, come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ. The free offer goes out. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. And so he delays, praise God. He's good. He's merciful. He's long suffering. He delays. You think the evil bothers him? He's holy, 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 holy. He hates sin, but he loves us. And so he delays, he delays, he delays. Because he loves and he wants more to come to faith in Christ. It's the day of the Lord's favor. But oh, here's what I want you to get also. Christians. That means it's the day for his people to share the gospel. How's he going to draw people to himself? He's going to write it on the sky? No. Us. We, We already went through the whole book of Acts, right? He chooses to use us. I know, shocking, pathetic, but that's what he's chosen to do. So today is not a day to get all caught up in something temporary. Today is the day of the Lord's favor. And the darker it gets, the more people are thinking, please tell me there's some hope somewhere. Please tell me there's something else. Please tell me there's a purpose. Please tell me there's a God. But believers need to share that message and speak the name of Jesus. We have a commitment we've made in our house. My, my sweet wife actually made it. She said, any repairman that comes into our house, we're going to share the gospel. And, and, and I hope you know that that strikes us the same way. When they're, they're wrapping up their tools, they're like, ah, I think I'm going to throw up. Wish we hadn't said that. He looks mean. I don't think he's interested. You know, a million reasons are like, ah, I don't want to do this. So Vicky always does it. She's so sweet. It goes well. But Saturday, there was a guy putting an outlet in our garage for a sump pump, blah, 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 blah. And she was shopping. I was like, I'm going to need to do that. <laughs> oh, God, help me. And I just prayed. I said, all right, all right, here we go. So I went out to pay him, give him the check. And then I said, here's this guy. And he was very open, right? I said, wow, I'm a pastor. You don't have to say that, especially since it's not true. And you say, <laughs> I'm a Christian. I know things are dark. I know things just seem like chaotic. This is like a terrible time to be alive. There is a God. He didn't say, can't be, shut up. He listened to me. I said, there's a God. I'd love for you to come to our church. I'd love for you to know there is hope in this world. God does love us. He does care about us. And then I gave him a track. 
called ultimate questions. I said, it doesn't matter your denomination. I don't care about denominational labels. This is what I think the Bible teaches about how you can know there's a God and you can know that you're right with that God. And he took it. You guys, it's as simple as that. And, and I said this, I don't think there's any accidents. I think it was a divine appointment because there's been this older guy doing all the work and he was waiting on some part and then he sends his, I don't know, nephew, this is some 20-something year old with a toboggan. I said, I believe God sent you here today, Eric, and it's not an accident. It's not an accident. I don't know what you're thinking, what you're going through, but here's hope. You guys, today is not the day to go crazy about other things and to give your whole life to other things. Jesus came to solve our biggest problem. And now we're supposed to be ambassadors of the good news about what he did about this biggest problem. You may have some time for a few other things, but at the end of your life, when you die or he takes you home or he returns, it ought to be, I spent the bulk of my life being about the main thing. And the main thing is that people are going to hell if they don't know Jesus. And we have the answer. We're not the answer and we're not the hope, but we're ambassadors of that hope and of that answer. Today's a great day to be a Christian, you guys. Don't say, oh, but do you realize what's going on? Yes, I do. Do you realize that the harvest throughout history, you can look at church history, the harvest is greatest when times are terrible, not prosperous. When jobs are great, the economy's great, everything's great, people think, I don't need God. This is a great time to talk to people about what matters most. This is a great time that God may be pleased to do a harvest like never before because things are like never before in America. And some of the things that we most trust in have been shaken and taken. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knows how we think. And Jesus knew why he came and that he's coming again, which is why. The book of Revelation talks about this same Jesus very differently than Luke talks about him. The apostle John in Revelation 19 says, Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness. It's not wrong that he does this, you guys. In righteousness, he judges and makes War. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself, Jesus, sweet Jesus, treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. Say it with me. King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, oh, come to Christ. The Savior is calling. The Savior is offering the free offer of the God. This is the day of the Lord's favor. 
He wants to set you free from your biggest problem, slavery to sin and Satan. And listen, you can bow today and find him as your savior. Or you will bow on that final day and face him as your judge. Don't squander the day of the Lord's favor. This will not last forever, you guys. This is the day of the Lord's favor. Don't squander it. Don't squander it. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Whether you're listening online or whether you're here. Oh, I plead with you. Don't treat this message intellectually and say, well, that's worth thinking a little more about. I'll give that some thought. Just like I said to the young man in my garage, I would say to you, it's no accident that you heard this message today. He's a good God. He's a good God. If something I said added clarity to the truth of who you really are, helpless and hopeless, or to the truth of who Jesus really is, the God-man, a Savior, respond today. To make no decision and to make no choice is to make a choice. Don't delay. Don't delay. Come to faith in Christ. You don't have to do anything. In fact, you can't do anything. But believe he is who he says he is. God in flesh. And he did what the scriptures testify he did. Lived the only perfect life. Died in your place for your sins. And rose again showing he has the power to conquer death and sin. And now is the day of the Lord's favor to anyone who by faith puts the trust in Jesus. By faith. By faith. Have you ever done that? Do it today. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you for showing us Jesus through the scriptures and the gospels. Oh God, for anyone here who does not know him or listening right now, give them eyes to see who Jesus really is. Beautiful, merciful, And faith to believe. And for every believer who's gotten confused, who's been derailed, who's lost focus, refresh us. Reboot us to be about what you're about in our weakness to see, oh my goodness, I have a reason for living. I have a purpose. I have a reason for living. I have a purpose. Ambassador for Jesus Christ channel of grace and truth. Use us in the harvest for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.